First Peter chapter 1, I'll be starting at verse 3 and read through chapter 2, verse 3, because our passage today, verses 22 through 25, touches on many of the ideas of the chapter. So First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that your tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that you have have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him our believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, 
but the Lord, word of the Lord remains forever. And this, is, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and for the many encouragements in it, and as we look now at this command to live in love. We pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes to examine ourselves, to see us rightly, to see you rightly, and to see our lives transformed by your spirit more and more into the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at 22 through 25, he starts off in 22 talking about purifying our souls by the truth. And of course, the truth there is the word of God. The word, the word is truth. And he ends the section talking again about the word of God, the living and abiding word of God that remains forever. And sandwiched in between this is his point that he's trying to draw out. And that is our need for sincere brotherly love. And so that will be our thought today, that we need to live in sincere love that comes from a purified heart by obedience to God's word. Now his first step to brotherly love that he gives in verse 22a is to purify our hearts by the truth. We see this purity of heart is really necessary for love because it's not natural to us. To love those who mistreat us is a foreign concept in the world. Our hearts are naturally corrupt. Uh, God is saddened by this. And in Genesis chapter 6, before he sends the flood, in verse 5, he says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the hearts was only evil continually. Now, it's a very harsh statement, but it's real. And it's not something that went away with the flood. Because Noah and his sons and daughter-in-laws were still human. They were still corrupted by the sin of Adam. They were still tainted, and we are to this very day. Our, because our hearts are naturally corrupted, they need to be purified to be able to love. Men don't want that, though. Men want a God who serves them, even more so today. But if we look at history, what were all the idols of the world about? They were about either appeasing these imaginary gods so that life would be better, or getting these imaginary gods to do something for them so their life would be better. You could get your wish fulfilled in Israel by passing your child through the flames to Moloch. And that goes on to this very day. They don't always call it gods anymore. They call it, you know, luck or fate or just practicality. But they still do these things. Man's heart is still far from God. 
They want their God to serve them. And that's how they pick their gods. And for many, even many Christians, that's what they expect from God. But shall the creator serve the creature? You know, does God exist to serve us, to glorify us, to fill us with joy? How do we exist to glorify God and enjoy him? Men want their, their, their God to be a God who winks at sin, who smiles and approves of sin, who's happy with our sin, who will even bless us so we can enjoy our sin all the better. But we have a God who is of purer eyes and to look upon evil, who cannot look at wrong. That was Habakkuk 1.13. Of course, Habakkuk is making a complaint against the Lord. Since this is true, you are of purer eyes and to see evil and cannot look upon wrong. Why do you look idly at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? We know the answer to that. Peter talks about it. In 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to reach repentance. And so the Lord is not being slow, even though it has been 2,000 years since Christ. He is not being slow because he is waiting patiently. The day of the Lord, it goes on to say, will come as a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. There is a coming day of judgment. Habakkuk was worried about that. Why is it not today? Well, the Lord is patient with us and with all his people, giving them an opportunity to come to repentance and with really all mankind, giving them an opportunity they won't use. But as we have learned and seen, he cannot let sin be, be sin. He cannot look upon it without dealing with it. We have that promise, both of the coming judgment and of the salvation that Peter has talked about in our passage, in our chapter today. The salvation that we wait for to be revealed at the last time. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Kind of a one-verse summary of half this chapter of 1 Peter. But an important one for us to remember. He's calling upon us to cleanse ourselves from corruption, from sin, both in the body and in the spirit. We're really called upon to be continually purifying our souls. James 4, 7 through 10 says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We are called upon, if we want to be near to God, to be with God, to be enjoying God, to cleanse our hands from our sin, to stop being double-minded. I follow God on Sunday and parts of the rest of the week, but I seek my own needs, my own desires, my own goals, apart from God. Usually we do that because there are goals and things that we know God won't approve. And it's a trouble for us to overcome, and that's what we're called upon, to purify ourselves from that. Paul, Peter, James, they all say the same thing because the Spirit is speaking through them, that we have this great need to be purifying our hearts. Paul says in Romans 6, 15-17, Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. We are slaves to obedience if we belong to Christ. Obedience to the word of truth. Obedience to his revealed will. Obedience is what makes that connection between God and us. We are trying imperfectly, but we are trying to be obedient, to be righteous, to be holy, because he is holy. And that desire in our heart is pleasing to God. We really, we do have a pure heart to, a, to an extent, and we read about that in Christ's own words. In John 15, and we looked at this passage last year, the first six verses, that I am the true vine, My father, the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And we talked about how that pruning was, you know, getting out those things that are no help to us and are contrary to what he wants, so that we can focus on the things that are right. Sometimes that pruning is painful as he takes away the, the things we love and the sins we love. But that is really the sanctification. That is the purification process. Him cutting away those things that are not helpful. It goes on to say, Already you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The word being the call of the gospel, but really the whole entirety of the word. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This process of purification, this process of sanctification, this process of becoming more holy before God is not something that men do in their own strength, in their own wisdom, in their own power, in their own goodness. It's something we do as Christ's people, in him, taking our strength from him. He, says, he goes on to say, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in, in him, it is he that bears much fruit. Fruit, The fruit of righteousness is the evidence of our holiness, evidence of our sanctification, evidence of our salvation. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
you know, we have this purity of heart, a purified heart, through him, through our personal relationship with Christ, through our salvation, yes, but also through our work in him. Not in ourselves, but in him and in his strength. And that is ours, and that was always part of the promise of salvation. And we've often looked at the passage in Isaiah, but in Ezekiel it also says much the same thing in Ezekiel 11, 8 through 20, 18 through 21. It says, and when they come here, talking about gathering all of his people, they will, I will remove from them all the detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put in them, and I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I shall be their God. But for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own head, declares the Lord. And this promise of salvation that Peter's been talking about in this passage, all of chapter 1, that's why I went all the way back to verse 3 today. That promise of salvation is one of having a new heart, and that new heart has been purified. Um, We still have a lot of corruption left in us, in our flesh. But from a spiritual standpoint, we have received a great gift of purification, and that enables us then to walk in his statutes and be careful to do all that he has commanded. And that is what Peter is talking about in our passage today, purifying our souls by obedience to the truth. Now you might ask, what does this truth have to do with it? Where does this pure heart come from in work? By declaring it to be pure? Do we say, yes, I I have believed and my heart is now pure and there's no more sin in me? Do I name it and claim it for a pure heart? Or is it something we're given or something we do? Well, as we saw above, it is something we're given and something we do. It's a joint work with God, our sanctification. Um, But we do it according to truth. Now, in our day, truth has become under attack again. Pilate was being mild when he said, what is truth? Meaning he didn't care what it was. Today it's a little different. I don't know whether I told my lawyer joke about this poor lady in a shopping mall taking a survey. She gets four people to come over, three people to come over, and says, all right, I'm going to give you some warm-up questions. Um, first one, what is two plus two? The first person there is a housewife. She says four. Second person's an accountant. He says, wait a minute, let me get out my spreadsheet. Third person's a lawyer. He says, what would you like it to be? That is truth today. What is truth? What would you like it to be? They get enraged when you say, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. And your truth is not better than my truth. There's no absolute truth because there's no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is absolute truth. It is the truth of God. 
They say, oh, but you're, you're, you're judging my truth. You know, judge not lest you be judged. Um, when you read the passage, you find out that with the judgment you pronounce, it will be judged to you. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is Matthew 7 in the first five verses. Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your eye? You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about unsaved Jews who were proud and arrogant and believed because they were Jews and they followed their own law that they were holy and they wanted to pick the little problems out of everybody else. Uh, Jesus also commands, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Luke 17, 3. You know, that's love. Why is that love? Well, we talked about this, I think, on Tuesday night, maybe this week or last week. Uh, if your child says, I can fly, and they want to climb up on the roof and jump off so they can fly, is it love to say, oh, yes, I believe in you. I want you to live your dream. Hey, why don't we drive to the city where there are taller buildings and you can jump off the top? And then when you get, if you get cold feet, I'll throw you. Is that love? No, what is love? Telling them the truth that, no, you can't fly. Stay off the roof. Don't be an idiot. Don't kill yourself. I don't really want to pay for your broken bones. You know, how does this work? Well, when somebody loves their sin, is it love to say, well, I'm going to accept you as a sin sinner? You want to be a homosexual? I'll accept that. You want to be a thief? I'll accept that. You want to be an adulterer? I, I, you know, it, it's your life and your truth. No, love is saying sin is sin. And if you don't repent, God will condemn you. What's condemned by Jesus, judge not lest you be judged, is the hypocrite who wants to be better than others by saying, you're a sinner and I'm better than you. You're a Gentile sinner, I'm a Jew of the Pharisees, you know, righteous in all of our rules. I think he's condemning them. When we see a sinner and we elevate ourselves over them, yes, we face God's wrath. But when we see them and call them to repent and turn to God, we're doing what's right. And that is part of loving our brother. But we're to love them with a purified heart. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. You know, that purification comes through the real truth, and the real truth is God's word. I, I've, in my Christian life, been rebuked many times by people who say I'm wrong. Uh, wore a hat in a building once, got rebuked, said I was a sinner. I, I don't always remember to capitalize God when I write my notes. Uh, I've been rebuked for blaspheming God. And my answer to them has always been the same. Is that a Bible you're carrying under your arm? Show me. No, I'm not from Missouri. I'm a Christian. You know, we have rules that we judge people by, that we make up, so that we elevate ourselves. And that's the condemnation. The truth, the word of God, is the standard we need to judge ourselves by. And there was no one but Jesus who ever lived according to it completely. So we can find plenty of things in there to work on for ourselves. How can a young man keep his way pure? Question in Psalm 119. 
verses 9 and 10, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. That is it. Sanctify them in the truth. We are here in this passage purifying ourselves by obedience to the truth. The word of God is that truth. As Christians, we should try to live in it. You know, by that I mean read it, study it, understand it, pray about it, meditate about it, and most importantly of all, apply it. And if there's no application, then the rest of it is all worthless and nonsense. Apply it to ourselves, apply it to our lives. And that's really where meditation on the word comes into play. As we think about what God has said and all of its meaning and application, we start looking at our own life and reflecting. You know, was I living according to what I have read or have I been going against it? And so application is key. And he moves on in the second half of our first verse here, 22, to move on to his key application here. Brotherly love is central, not just in this passage, but in the Christian life. We, do, we are sanctified for a sincere brotherly love. We see brotherly love is really the result of our sanctification, which is the result, really, of God having loved us. And John says that in 1 John. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. And so this is his key application in this section, but one of the great key applications of Scripture. We must love our brother. That love must be in the truth the truth of God's word. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. He said, As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. In other words, things outside of Scripture which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Why does he tell him that? Why does he make such a big fuss about proper doctrine? Why does he make a fuss about ideas coming from outside the Bible? Well, verse 5, he continues on. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. You know, our doctrine is the truth. If it is not the truth, then we are not loving in the truth. If we are loving in the truth, then we will have true doctrine. And that's his point here. Stop them from teaching bad doctrine so that they may have love from a pure heart. It's very important in our Christian life that our love, that our life be according to the truth. And this love he gave us include giving us a new heart, and that new heart is a love, heart that can love 
even our brother. This is earnest brotherly love. Strong and brotherly love is something that will naturally flow from our purified heart. Now, I don't think brotherly love is the be-all and end-all of sanctification. You know, it's not the final purpose, the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of our sanctification is to be like Christ. Love is very central, but it is not the only thing. However, love, particularly of our brethren, is a very strong evidence and a strong indicator of both salvation and where we are in our sanctification. Do you hate your brother? We just read that you don't love God. Uh, Do you love them when they're good to you and get frustrated when they're not? Um, Worry about it. Where are you? Do you love them begrudgingly? Or do you love them as Christ loved us? How did Christ love us? Well, I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. One of the distinguishing badges of Christianity that separates the the believing Christian from more the cultural Christian is the ability to love those who are hard to love. Not all of our brothers are perfect in their sanctification or sisters. Uh, Some of them, they come by and they push all your buttons, cause explosions, and... Can you still love them? You know, love does not mean I accept you in all of your sins. <laughs> you know, it, it means if they sin, tell them they're sinning. But are you still loving them in the way you treat them, in the way you call them to repentance? You know, the, a rebuke that is made in love has the purpose of seeing the person repentant, restored, and growing in Christ. And that's when we rebuke somebody, we have to ask ourselves, was that coming out in, was that in my heart? Does that come out in what I've said? Does that come out in what I've done? You know, that's the difference in love, earnest love for our brother. Now, what does it look like? Well, God's love, of course. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. How did God love us? Well, he gave his son for us. How did Christ love us? He gave himself up for us. For our, for our reconciliation with God, for our salvation. And when did he love us? When we had crossed the point of the scales tipping in our favor, we're more good than we are bad. Uh, is that how it works? God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 eight. Uh, thankfully, he loved us before we were lovable. He loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us when we were yet enemies, yet sinners. And that is key then to our love. If we are to love as Christ loved us, then yep, we've got to love those unlovable people in our life. It's hard. It's very hard. It's impossible sometimes for us as sinners. But it is what we are called to do. And he also, Christ loves us by caring about our sanctification. 
John 17, verse 17 and following, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. But what follows? You have sent me into the world, and I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now, our sanctification, our growth in our faith, our obedience, all of that was important to him. And he was willing to sacrifice for that. And so a Christ-like love is one that wants to see other people grow. Uh, we were talking about education recently. And you know, one of the reasons why some people, when they try to teach, it's so hard to understand is because their purpose in teaching is to show their superiority. And they don't really want you to understand. They want you to recognize that they know more than you do that they have a bigger vocabulary, that they understand things you don't. And they don't want you to grow. And whereas the humble teacher who wants you to grow is the one who will explain things so that you can understand it and be happy when you exceed them. I had a lot of teachers in my life who were of the first group, but I've had some of the second group where they teach you what you need to know and you get beyond what they're capable of understanding and they shake their head and they put you on independent study. <laughs> Had that happen in college a few times. Uh, but that's the kind of love that God wants us to have, where we care about the result with them. You know, it's not about my glory and my greatness and my superiority, it's about seeing you grow in Christ. And even if somebody grows beyond you, you know, God will be happy that you helped and you will receive a reward, not for being best, but for the work that you've done. However, for most of us, love sometimes grows cold. We grow weary in doing good and we're warned not to do that. In the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never fails. And that is God's love for us, and that needs to be our love. Again, though, how can we do this? Well, it's possible because we have been born again through the living word of truth. Verse 23, Since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. You know, that being born again is what it means to be a Christian. I remember, I think it was in Jimmy Carter's day, I wasn't a Christian. He claimed to be born again. And nobody even knew what that meant at the time. What is he talking about? It had been so forgotten in society as a whole that they didn't understand. Jesus says, though, if, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. John 3, 3. And he goes on and says, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. We must be born of the spirit, born again. Have that new heart that we read about just a few minutes ago. In order for us to be able to enter heaven, but also in order for us to be able to love our brother. And he says we are born not of corruptible 
but of incorruptible seed. John talks about this in the beginning of his epistle in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, meaning ancestry, which is corruptible, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, all of those things are corruptible, but of God, which is incorruptible. Being born again. Oh, that has come because of his great mercy, which he has shown us. We have this in the resurrection of Christ, we've been reading about here in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. It brings us a great and glorious inheritance. And because of all of these things that it has done for us, we are not only enabled then to love, but we are called upon as a responsibility to love. And that's what it really is. Now, this is a very beautiful praise of God's word. Uh, Very exciting. Starting in 23, the end of verse 23, the living and abiding word of God. It is not some old, useless, dead book that has interesting facts for people 5,000 years ago. You know, it is a much, as much with us, as much alive, as much exciting today as it ever was. And the living word of God, of course, Christ, very, very much stressed that throughout his ministry. He said in Matthew 5, 19, or 18 and 19, until the heaven and the earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law till all is accomplished. You know, not the least stroke of the pen or the smallest letter will change. It's all required. And he says, the one who relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we have this great and wonderful word of God that is never going to decay, never going to rot, never going to be useless. It is imperishable. It is abiding. All flesh is like grass. You you think of the flowers of the field. They come up and they go. I remember in uh, Cambodia, we were riding on my little motor, motor scooter. I had my translator on the back of the bike. And we're going down this road that's like this. I mean, the hills and valleys on the road were two, three feet at times, mud down in the bottom, and we're kind of zigzagging slowly, and oh, it's so fatiguing. So we get to this little area and pull off to stretch our backs and rest, and there's a small lake in front of us, and on it are a thousand pink lilies, and they're so beautiful, water lilies, and they're so beautiful. On our way home, we decide to stop and take a picture. They're all gone. They last, they're pink in the morning. Once they're pollinated, they turn white and they disappear. They close. And so this great field of beautiful flowers, gone. And you think about the scorching heat in this area. The flower comes up and it fades and is gone. And he's making an allusion to that idea that 
They come up and they disappear. And that is men. All men are like that. They just, they're, they're here for a day, for 80 years, 100 years. They have a small impact and they're gone and forgotten. But the, glo- but the word of the Lord, he says, remains forever. You know, we were excited by that view and really wanted a picture on our way back. But it was fleeting. It's gone. God's word, however, is forever. Very interesting and very beautiful way of explaining that to us. And as, you, as we read, it comes from the Old Testament. We read that passage this morning in Isaiah 40. This is always going to be there, but when we look at the word of man, the ideas of man, the religion of man, the politics of man, it comes and goes. And whenever I think about that, how futile and fading it all is, my mind immediately goes to one book of the Bible. One of my favorites, the Handbook on Materialism, also known as Ecclesiastes. And in the first chapter, starting at verse 9, he says, you know, What has been will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in ages before us. There's no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. What's his point? His point is saying, yes, men have all these ideas, and like the, like the grass of the field and the flowers of the field, they spring up for a little bit and disappear. And Ecclesiastes is saying, And yeah, even when they spring up, been there, seen that, done that, it's not the first time. It's already happened. That's why people make such parallels in politics, especially in our day. We all know who we think of the current government being like. Uh, It's all been before. There's nothing new under the sun. But God's word abides forever. It is unchanging. It is God-breathed. It is complete and perfect in all of its knowledge and all of its understanding. If we really read the Bible and understand who God is, everything that has happened and everything that will happen was part of his eternal plan. He knew exactly what would happen. He knew what I would say today. He knew which words I would misspeak before he created the world. And it's important when we think about that then think about his word. Is it possible, oh, God doesn't understand what's happening to me. God doesn't understand the situation in America. Now we get to that passage where Peter says, submit yourselves to the governing authorities. No, 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 no. God didn't know what was going. Yes, he did. And we can understand and believe and be confident that what he has said is said to that situation as well. It abides forever. It couldn't be our guide. It couldn't be the source of our sanctification. Sanctify us in the truth. The word is truth. If it was fleeting in past. Oh, but these are old ideas that don't work. No, they're not. They're as important today as they ever were. They're as true today as they ever were. 
And he goes on to say that this word is the good news that you've heard. You know, there's nothing in the gospel that is not in the Old Testament, that is not in the Bible. There are mysteries made clearer, but it was all intended to be the good news for us. Not just the parts we like, not just the parts about salvation, but as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. I have had people tell me, oh, no, no, we don't want to study that stuff. It's not useful to us. No, it's profitable. It may be hard to understand, hard to get the profit from it, or maybe rejected and despised and hated, but it is profitable. For what? Teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All Scripture is useful for our sanctification. All Scripture is useful for purifying our hearts. God tells us what he loves, what he hates, what he wants, what he expects, what he promises in Scripture, in all of it. And one of those things he talks about a lot is that nearly impossible task of loving our brother as ourself. How do you love that unlovable, sinful, imperfect brother? There's a lot about it in the Bible. <clears throat> and so, the love of God for us, our salvation, the purification of our hearts, all of this can be seen as God's love for us and all of it should be seen in our love for our brothers. It's all tied together. He is our brother Christ who has shown us brotherly love. We are to show that same love to those around us, especially those of the family of faith. Uh, it's not an easy task. But if we spend our time living in the word of truth, loving it, rejoicing in it, wanting to be what it says, even when it's hard, then we can make progress. And we are to be holy as he is holy, perfect as he is perfect, that he understands. It's a long road. And we may not get there in this life. But as long as we're moving down it, we're doing good. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that <coughs> we have your word and we have all the things we need to know and all the things we need to understand and all the things we need to do. And they are explained to us very clearly that we can get started on that road, that we can walk a long way down it with the simplest of instructions. Help us, Lord, not to become distracted by the confusing parts, but to do all the things that we understand, all the things that we can see. And bless, Lord, that we would grow in our holiness, that we would purify our hearts and walk closer to you, that you might walk closer to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>